0: Libros Schmibros is a podcast exploring the people, books, movies, and ideas that Angelenos care about in a thoughtful way that even New Yorkers can understand. We're coming to you from Libros Schmibros, our nonprofit bilingual lending library in Boyle Heights on the west coast of the country and the east bank of the mighty Los Angeles River. I'm David Kippen. I am among teaching at UCLA and, um, uh, um, Editorializing on behalf of a new federal writers project. I am the founder uh, of Libro Schmibros, which um, I dare say you may not know, uh, Mr. West, is a nonprofit storefront bilingual lending library in Boyle Heights across the street from the Mariachi Plaza station.
1: Well, I know of it generally through you, and I want to find out more about it, and I will go exploring myself at some point.
0: I would dearly love that. Um, I, uh, I guess uh, well, let me ask by, by asking you about your backdrop. It's beautiful.
1: Oh, that's uh, we're sitting in my living room because I have been working at home, as you can imagine for the past 14 months practically, <laughs> yeah, although I can go back to the office now and I do. but no, we're sitting in my living room and it's a, a painting by a favorite contemporary native artist of mine, uh, Tony Abeta. Ah. And, uh, and I hasten to emphasize as a director, that I acquired it before I was in the director's <laughs> position. So there is no conflict.
0: <laughs> I, I, I perfectly understand as a as a director myself, I have to I have to mind my P's and Q's. Yeah. Um I I, I guess I'd left out the most important thing, which is that libro Schmibros has this podcast, and you've been gracious enough uh to agree to it. And so I'll try to make it as as painless as possible. Um, let me think for a moment. Um so um I gather you've announced that you're retiring as early as next month, but I, I understand you also retired once before, so <laughs> why should we believe you?
1: <laughs> well, uh, there are a couple of things going on there. Uh, first of all, I because my successor, whom I know very well, is... Uh, one, one of your colleagues at UCLA, the former chair of the American History Department, uh, Steve Aaron, um, because of academic schedules, he had to let people know much sooner than I would have had to let people know I was leaving, that he was coming. And so I actually announced last September that I was leaving. So, so even though June 30th is, is coming up in a rush, uh, we've known a long time that this was going to happen. And on the question about retirement, uh, go ahead.
0: I realize as a mark of my podcasting professionalism, I haven't introduced you. Oh, Uh,
1: well, okay.
0: um, And and perhaps in view of my uh, rustiness, I I should give you the opportunity to do it. Surely, Um, I'll
1: I'll be glad to do that. Then we'll come back to retirement. Uh, My name is Rick West, and I'm currently the president and CEO of the Autry Museum of the American West here in Los Angeles and come June 30th, I will become the President and CEO Emeritus, comma, Ambassador, comma, Native Communities. That's my title in retirement at the, at the uh, Autry. Uh, I, I previously, I also am the uh, uh, founding director and director emeritus of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian where I was for some 20 years. Now, so on, on to the retirement question, Here, here's how it works. Uh, basically, when uh, my wife, Mary Beth, to whom I've been married come June 29th, about 53 years, I mm-hmm. uh, said, well, we, we went through this hoop once. This time, I expect it to stick, mm-hmm. and it had better stick. Mm-hmm. So with that motivation, I am indeed retiring on June 30th. And while I don't intend to be completely quiescent uh, in retirement. uh, I will indeed not have an 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. job six days a week any longer. And for that, I am indeed grateful because I'll have an opportunity to do some other things too. So it will stick, I promise you, David.
0: I don't do it on my account. (laughs) You mentioned your very long and durable marriage, which makes me wonder, uh, as I was wondering um, already, uh, how did your parents meet?
1: How did my parents meet? Well, my, my dad, Dick West, uh, is the Native side of my family. We're Cheyenne uh, from Oklahoma. And my mother uh, was non-Native. And they met at a small uh, junior college, which had been a former Indian mission school in Oklahoma called Bay Cone College. Now, because he had spent the first 20 years of his life uh, in boarding schools, uh, he went to college late. And so my mother was actually on the faculty. He was a student uh, as a 20-something. And uh, they were quite proper and they didn't date while uh, he was a student and she was a, she was a faculty member. Um, but then when he went on to Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma for his to finish up college, um, they indeed ended up getting married after a couple of years. And so that's how they met. And it's, it's, it's an interesting combination, which is sort of reflective of my life in certain respects. He's native, she wasn't, uh, not only was she not native, but she was the daughter of missionaries to China. Uh, Mm. And and so the irony of that was not lost upon me looking back at at it in retrospect, when uh, my mother not only countenanced uh, the brown people. She married one of them and they also had a, had a lovely and lasting, uh, lasting marriage. But that's, that's how they met, uh, was at Bacon College, uh, back in the late 30s.
0: It makes me want to ask, um, my wife is writing a book now, uh, partly about her, um, Ojibwa, uh, roots. Ah. And, uh, this is Colleen Jarechi, who also teaches with me at UCLA. And uh, it makes me very curious, how would you say that growing up part Native American uh, would have been different from someone who, whose parents are Native American on both sides?
1: Well, I, I think it may, have been, it may have been more distinctive then than mm-hmm. it is now. Um, for me, uh, it, it sits in the backdrop of this particular history. Uh, I was born, believe it or not, in San Bernardino, about 60 miles from here. And the reason I was born in San Bernardino is that during World War II, dad was stationed in the Navy in California. Mm -hmm. And it also happened that my my mom's family was settled here in Southern California. So hence his being out here, my being out there. But then by design, we returned very promptly toward Oklahoma soon after World War II. And uh, so the setting we were in was essentially more Native than non-Native. In other words, we were back in Oklahoma amongst our friends and relatives from Cheyenne country, which is in Western Oklahoma, even though Bacon is in Eastern Oklahoma. And the college where I was raised was at the time I was there probably about 90% native in student body. Hmm. And and so it was very much a, a, a native surround. Was I aware uh, that I was a breed, a half breed. Well, yes, because I look like one. Uh, my brother does not. My brother looks much more native than I do. Mm-hmm. Although those who are native can usually pick me out for being native. We won't go into exactly how, but that's they 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 can. Um, so it was uh, it was never an issue uh, as I as I was growing up. There was more sensitivity then I believe to those who were not full bloods than there is now simply because the blood has become increasingly diluted as we go forward. In my tribe, for example, the CNAs in, in Oklahoma are now considering reducing the blood quantum requirement to one eighth um, instead of one quarter. Uh, and so it's possible that you know our, our kids actually will will have the opportunity to enroll too, which I would like because they have both sat quite close uh, to the native community and to Cheyenne country in Oklahoma.
0: What does that, uh, proposed change from one quarter to one eighth reflect?
1: Uh, I think it reflects the fact that there is, um, there is blood dilution, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that that was not, that was not our doing. Mm. Blood quantums are really an instrument of colonialism, if you will. In other words, they were established by the Department of the Interior, not by the Cheyennes, even though the Cheyenne, um, you know, very well. They, they, they just want to make sure that they don't lose community simply because those who do have cultural connections with the tribe uh, do not have the ability to actually be formally a part of the community and be a citizen, if you will, of Cheyenne Arapahoe.
0: Got it and um, I, I gather you came back to California for your college years, is that right?
1: I did, and that was really because I, uh, my mother went to the University of Redlands and I went to the University of Redlands and my brother went to the University of Redlands. Um, so it was, it was I, I would never say this because I have great respect for the university on whose board I have sat from time to time. Uh-huh. Um, it, it was slight default, if you will, in other words, college counseling at, at Muskogee Central High in Oklahoma was uh, not at the apex of, of such things. And uh, it was, I have no regrets for having gone there. I loved it. And, uh, but, uh, and I'm not sure I could have taken much more at the time, quite honestly. Still, coming to LA from Muskogee, Oklahoma, was like going to the moon, quite frankly. <laughs> um,
0: what, and- was that like? what was it what, like? What do you remember about that? <laughs> Well,
1: what I what I remember about it, I guess the first time I came, I came by train. Yeah, not by plane, but I came by train I think. And and uh, then you had to go up to Kansas City and then come out on what had been Santa Fe, you know, mm-hmm. through out uh, through New Mexico and Arizona. And and I remember I remember coming to an area that was clearly urban, mm-hmm. except. You know that was San Bernardino, and then we went on for another hour, and we were still in the city. Mm. And I remember thinking, "What on earth?" <laughs> uh, and then LA, in contrast to now, LA, LA was just—I mean, it still is a is a mega city. I know that, but but it it has now kind of centers of community. We live in Los Feliz. That really very much has its own feel and everything to it. Um, and, and L.A. at that time just had no center. That's what troubled me. It oh. was just this expansive urbanity with no centers to it. And therefore, in my view, not much community to it. Hmm. Um, so it, it was kind of startling in that way. Uh, but then I sort of compounded things by going from L.A. to Boston to uh, grad oh. school. And that was, again, like going to the moon, but a different moon.
0: <laughs> well, I promise I'm not gonna frog march you through your entire life, but I'm it's curious. Quite, uh, I've been um I- I've been working um quite hard li- this year trying to uh reinvent the Federal Writers Project. Yes. Um, I saw and um um uh, I- I've come into contact uh, uh with a guy named Jim Fallows who also went to Redlands. It must be a remarkable place.
1: I I have you know, it was. As I say, in some respects, it's about all I could take at that time uh, with all the changes, but I, I loved it. You know, I, I'm deeply supportive of small good liberal arts colleges mm-hmm. uh, because there's, there's, there's just a, a humanity and, and manageable empathy to them that, that was very important to me being so startled by having left Oklahoma. So it worked out very well.
0: Now, even before you got to Redlands, were you a bookish kid? Um...
1: Was I, yes, I was, I was a debater and a bookish kid. That kind yeah. of worked together.
0: Were there, I mean, I say this selfishly because, you know, part of what we do at Libros is try to turn younger people onto reading if they, if they haven't found it on their own, of course. Um, yeah. Were there early books that, that got to you and made a reader out of you?
1: Probably so. I remember, uh, yes, there, there, there were probably several. Uh, some, of them, some of them we had to read you know, an English class in high school. But others we didn't that I liked. Um, I, I, I remember Zorba the Greek. Now, that may have not been when I was, I don't know, when, when did Zorba the Greek get published?
0: Well, the movie was in the 60s, I assume.
1: Right, and the book must have been, in, in any event, that, that was, I, I, books that stood out for me were those that had sort of an existential edge to them. Mm-hmm. whatever the Greek did, um, and Camus, uh, to the extent that I could wade through that, which was super existential. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it uh, the books that stand out for me, honestly, are those which have to do, um, I don't want to make this sound too grand, but with the nature of man and the nature of the universe, if you will. Uh, and especially when I was trying to find my way at the time out of the Baptist church. So it, sort of, it all fit together in some ways. And not that I completely left the church. Hmm.
0: Were you exposed to much Native American literature as a kid?
1: No, because it didn't exist for the most part.
0: <laughs> Seriously, what?
1: it did not exist.
0: What was your first encounter with it? When did that come? My first encounter with
1: it is oral, not read. Mm-hmm. And, and that shouldn't surprise you because our tradition is oral. Yeah. And, and so my first encounter with what I would call literature, even though orally expressed rather than in writing, yeah. um, uh, was, uh, I have a recollection when I was six years old of, of being at the university, university of Oklahoma in Norman, mm-hmm. where my father was getting his, uh, uh, master of fine arts yeah. and, um, each night, And this was kind of before air conditioning. It was hot as all get out. Humid, uncomfortable, terrible. And he would tell us legends. Mm-hmm. And one time, uh, the, the houses were also very close together. And our neighbor uh, heard my father um, telling these stories uh, to us. And so she proposed to him the idea. And so this is also one of the first books that I read. Mm-hmm. um, called Tales of the Cheyenne, mm-hmm. which my father illustrated, oh. uh, for her, and she happened to work for the University of Oklahoma Press, so that's how all of that got put together rather quickly. Um, so, you know, that was, it, it's an interesting question you ask, because, because at that time, um, authors, Native authors, uh, this, it was storytelling, yeah. There was storytelling in oral form, not necessarily printed form. Mm-hmm. It is only sort of, I would say, with probably into the 70s and mm-hmm. late 70s, 80s, that there began to be a raft of very good people who who wrote. And I, I remember uh, being absolutely mesmerized um, uh, because his, uh, his father, Al Mamadei, had been a a colleague of my
0: father's a you're, very speak- you're speaking of scott momaday and the way yeah
1: and so they had something which had a very ambitious title it was called the convocation of american indian scholars and mm-hmm. i was a struggling first year student in law school at stanford i would not really really consider myself entitled to be in a convocation of american indian scholars but i was there nonetheless and this is just as housemate of dawn was coming out yeah so he he read it to us uh, he gave a reading for us who were attending the conference. Uh, and it was transformative. Really? So I was convinced that what I had always heard through my ears, uh-huh. I could also experience through my eyes by reading it too, because it was a profoundly beautiful book.
0: And people don't think of it as a Los Angeles novel, but of course, part of it is about the protagonist's uh, time in LA. A-
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And he because he was a BIA kid. He kind of moved around with, uh, you know, with his parents when they were going from one spot to another. But he is to this day, I can promise you, deeply, deeply Kiowa. And, uh, and I see him from time to time still.
0: Um, now, when you speak of, of Native American literature, whether oral or written, I, I, it, it sounds as if you're speaking of that literature in English. Um, yes, I am. I am. And, you know, partly, you know, because I'm working on this writer's project, uh, plan, um, I think, uh, I find myself thinking of, um, native language preservation, which the original writer's project was part of, Mm -hmm. um, are we as much in danger of losing languages these days, and especially in light of the pandemic, as, uh, as I've heard. I'm, I'm, I've been friends for decades with Malcolm Margolin, who of course has done so much with news from native California. Um, it's
1: funny you should be dead I was, I was on a Zoom with him day before yesterday. I was, I know him very well. Oh, I I mean, he's been one of my long time heroes. He's, he's one of the very best white men I know. I can <laughs> <laughs> and just a wonderful human being. And we were doing a memorial, and we'll come, come back to what you were talking about. Yes. Ago, but we were doing a memorial for the former chairman of our board, the person who recruited me to come to the entree, and named Marshall McKay, mm-hmm. who's a very distinguished Native leader and former president of Yochadihi up north in California, the community. And he passed during because of COVID, and uh, so we were we were doing that. But uh, I, Malcolm, and I worked together. He he was in you know taking the lead and doing most of it, but we collaborated on, on on trying to do that. So anyway, back back to your back to your question. Yeah, it, it is it is language language is in danger. There's no question about it. And uh, one of the things that I want to do in retirement, I do not speak. Um, fluent Cheyenne. Right. I know some Cheyenne. Uh, my father understood mm-hmm. a fair amount of Cheyenne. But of course, when he was growing up, he was put in boarding schools when he was four or five years old and stayed there until he was tw- in his early 20s. And uh, of course, it, it, is, it is not just legend. They were literally throttled for speaking uh, Cheyenne in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And, and so the language kind of went uh, in that respect, as, as the federal policy wanted it to go at that point. And so we, we've been recovering from that ever since. And one of the things that I do wish to do in retirement is we are establishing, it may already exist on paper, but it needs to be kind of revived, and rejuvenated. Yeah. The um, Cheyenne, may maybe Cheyenne in Arapaho, but it's certainly a Cheyenne historical society that sort of sits in Western Oklahoma. And and one of the projects there, excuse me, will will be the preservation of language, which is which is incredibly important. But there's there's an interesting twist to your asking about that because you must be familiar with Troyer at USC. Yes. Yes. Okay. The Troyer, the novelist. He has rather he has rather specific views about those. I'm not even sure I agree with him completely. But he writes so beautifully; I can't resist it. Mm-hmm. Um, that that those who sort of um, purport to be telling native stories, who write in English, um, and and it sort of begins and ends with English. Story begins in English in their minds and ends with English on paper in the book. Are there's something missing with that? And so he, as you know. Has gone to great pains, and I, I think that he is reasonably fluent at this point mm-hmm. in in Ojibwe, and which is which is his uh, community, and and he feels that there's a great deal to be attached mm-hmm. to to being able to to speak the language and to even write in the language, mm-hmm. if you will, mm-hmm. uh, but at least to have it be a critical piece of doing the storytelling because there's so many things which sort of get lost in translation yeah. to uh, invoke the movie for a moment.
0: Right, um, I, 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 I don't know if any efforts have been made uh, in the other direction, if, if uh, literature, like for example, um, Housemaid of Dawn uh, or, or any classics um, are beginning to be translated into native languages like Cheyenne or Kiowa, do you know? I, I, I would doubt that. Quite honestly, I I, will, I
1: don't want to say no. Yeah. I'd love it if I were proved to be wrong that that is happening, right. happening now. Um, I do know that I do know that uh, Housemate of Dawn has been translated into French, uh, <laughs> but that's a far cry from Kiowa. Hmm. Uh, and and part of it is that um, you know since the the languages, with the exception of the of the Cherokee Cyrillic alphabet. Um, you know, are phonetic. In yeah. other words, the, the only way you can preserve them in writing is phonetic. Mm-hmm. And, and they're just not enough people who speak it, really. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's unfortunate. I hope it will change.
0: I, I guess I have another selfish question, which is, um, I had a book out a few years ago called Dear Los Angeles, The City in Diaries and Letters. And I'm now writing um, Dear California, The State in Diaries and Letters. And there's a problem with the original that I'd like to redress, which is it starts in 1542 with the Cabrillo Expedition. Um, I would love uh, somehow, if not with uh, um, a diary or a letter, I would like to start as far back as that, if not before, with Native uh, um, uh, uh, speakers from, you know, before certainly before the 16th century would you is there any um oral history or better yet uh, creation myth or what do i know about this you know better than i do where would you look for such a thing well where i would look
1: uh, again you have ready access at ucla you talk mm-hmm. yourself right over to the american indian studies department and and uh, and of course the the autry itself has a very close association in fact a formalized agreement with them at the moment uh, which I, which has been put in place since I got here, and I hope it will last forever with the Tongva, you know, who are the Gabrielino Tongva, mm-hmm. are sort of the originating group of, of this whole basin, really, um, uh, along with the Chumash. I want to be very careful because the Chumash have some territory that's in LA County, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are folks there, and, and uh, Steve Aaron actually is supervising, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the dissertations of one of the students who is Tongva is, oh. is a distinguished, distinguished anthro-archaeologist scholar, mm-hmm. but, but that's where you turn. I mean, there, there are there, and, and we will be doing something at the Autry eventually that is much more explicitly and physically um, uh, a recognition of Tanva, of the fact that we sit on Tanva land, right. and we acknowledge it every time we have a program at the entree,
0: quite honestly. Um, yeah, one of the things that we're, we're working on is potentially, uh, um, you know, we would hope that the Writers Project um, pays some attention to the Paiute in Mono County. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So as we're talking about all these, these communities in California, would you, how would you say that uh, California Native Americans might or might not be in some way uh, different or distinct from native populations elsewhere in the country?
1: Well, what what I would say, there are a couple of things I would say. Uh, you know, of native populations in North America yeah. or in the United States even, mm-hmm. uh, the most populous regions were in California. And you can understand why. An abundance of natural resources, mild climates, surplus economies, uh, et cetera, et cetera, all were there. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the, un- unfortunately, the flip side of that coin is, even as among Native people, honestly, and, yeah. and, you know, we Cheyennes did not do so terribly well by the uh, by the Seventh Cavalry either. Yeah. But even in comparison, mm-hmm. um, uh, Native peoples and communities in California were decimated in mm-hmm. some ways far worse than any other set of Native communities in in the United States, and they have been a long time trying to cover from that. I know when we were doing the consultations for the NMAI, which we did for a two to three year period before we designed any buildings or yeah. like put programs together, um, We I came, California was first on the consultation list.
0: Really? And
1: I did that very specifically and intentionally because they have felt left out sometimes of even their own larger native community. Really? Um, And and it's just a series of awful things. I mean, the gold rush came along when it did. Mm -hmm. And just as that came along, there was a whole raft of treaties that were to have been approved during that period, which would have made them all federally recognized. Mm -hmm. Instead, it didn't happen. And so they've been scrapping ever since, trying to figure out how to get federal recognition they probably should have had over, you know, over 100 years ago, um, and didn't get 150 years ago. And they just had a lot of uphill. The demographic collapse of of Native communities in in California was just dramatic. In approximately a decade and a half period, the demographic collapse was almost 75%. And that was because of, literally, of bounties. That were issued by the territorial government with respect to native
0: natives in california it was dreadful i i know i, I know there's a scholar a couple of years ago is it benjamin madley who wrote a book yeah, ben, ben american genocide. is uh I, I, is american genocide sound like a fitting title to you absolutely
1: uh, i don't know how you can call it anything else he actually when the book came out he we held a uh, book signing a lecture in a book signing yeah. Uh, at the auction for the for it and and it uh, you can tell it it has it has in that kind of setting the power of basically be an accounts book I think it's a dissertation probably made into a book yeah but it is it is nothing but the facts and and you just look at it and it's it's simply it's like getting a brick bat right in the face it yeah. is it is undeniable you just can't skirt it yeah. and the numbers speak. Tons.
0: Now, I know you were a history major, at least at Redlands, and maybe at Harvard. Did you, is this a part of history that you studied, or did you specialize in something else?
1: No, I, I, um, I was a history major at Redlands, and, uh, and I, I was in the American History Department at Harvard. Yeah. Um, at the time, I, uh, because there was no option, uh, my, my pursuit, both a little bit of Redlands, as well as at um, at Harvard, uh, was diplomatic history, U.S. diplomatic history, mm-hmm. and the uh, diplomatic historian. I don't know you're you're too young to remember all these people, but Ernie May was the diplomatic historian at Harvard. He was just stunning, and so I was delighted to do that. But then I found out when I got there that. Uh, Oscar Hamlin's view of American history was a little bit like this for me, Mm -hmm. uh, if I wanted to know anything more there about about Native history. I mean, it just wasn't an object of scholarship for the most part Mm -hmm. at that time. It is now, very much so. But it wasn't then. And and that's one of the reasons why I bailed. I was in a PhD program in history. Mm -hmm. And then I decided after about three months of that that I should have gone to law school after all. And then that's when I decided to go to law school and I went to Stanford. I, I wanted to be near the, if you will, near the barricades in the mid sixties, then I could be becoming an academic in history from Harvard.
0: And uh, California, I dare say, was a good place to be near the barricades. It, it was, it was. Although
1: I was Stanford, not Berkeley. If you, if you really wanted to be near the barricades, you went slightly to the Northeast and crossed the Bay and went to Berkeley. <laughs>
0: Well, um, let's actually uh, leap over your legal career um, and because I want to know what it's like to start a museum from scratch. <laughs> Do you see all the gray hair? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: no, I loved it. Mm. I loved it. And, and starting from scratch, it, it is a blessing and a curse. Mm. It's a blessing because you're, write, you're writing on a, pretty much a clean slate although if you're you're a Smithsonian museum, it's not absolutely clean because you're in this big established institution, but it was about as clean as, as one could have hoped in, in that situation. So that's the blessing. And then the curse is that every mistake you make is your own. It's nobody mm-hmm. else's. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that what, and this is in retrospect, I, I won't claim <laughs> wisdom at the time, but in retrospect, I would say, that what appeals to me, I've never been anything but a museum director in the field. In other words, I didn't work my way up through the curatorial ranks or anything like that. I was a director from the beginning. Uh, Thought I knew much more than I really knew. And I paid some, you know, some pence for that. Uh, But uh, what, what appealed to me about it is that it is, for those of us however good we are at it, who have an entrepreneurial bent, Mm -hmm. it is a wonderful territory to be in. And remember that even the secretary of the Smithsonian, who's a very distinguished and established anthropologist, Bob Adams, uh, was much of the mind that this was a different place. that there was something about that institution that made native peoples, not just audiences of the National Museum of the American Indian, but constituents, of the National Museum of the American Indian. And that there was a lot of self-definition and first person voice that went along with that as well as the special responsibility uh, to native communities and bringing the NMAI to them and not expecting them to trundle to either Washington DC or New York to participate. Mm -hmm. And and that was very much uh, of appeal to me. I mean, I, I had a solid enough background having grown up native I even had a certain connection with museums because dad was a very successful artist. His art is in all of those museums at this point. Um, And so I had that kind of connection. And so I arrived with certain ideas. I was not a completely blank slate when I got there. And the three fundamental prongs of the the, uh, mission statement of the NMAI at the beginning uh, were what were in my mind. And it was first person voice. It was native peoples as on a large extensive time continuum from a very deep past right up to the present. No ethnographic remnants here. Nobody falling off the stage of history. We're right here. And then finally, that we had a responsibility to um, give back or associate with in very collaborative and profound ways with living native communities. And those were, the, those were the three things that, that uh, the institution went after during my ten as
0: director. And when you say first person, you mean, and here again, we go back to the writer's project. You mean uh, uh, reliant uh, to, to a great degree on oral history? Or uh, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, native viewpoint. Oh, and I it see. Could, it could be oral history, but it could be contemporary observation, which is contemporary history. if you will but the the idea being that native people were capable Mm -hmm. and knowledgeable about their about their history their experience and even the present and projecting to the future and that that it should be accorded uh authority and authenticity Mm -hmm. uh, instead of constantly having our history and experience told in a third person voice Now, it was not a new exclusivity. It's not that I wanted to get rid of that. I just wanted, it's that I wanted more inclusion. It's not that I wanted exclusivity for Native first-person voice, but I really did feel that it should be an authoritative part of the interpretive and representational mix at the NMAI.
0: Well, I mean, as someone who spent five years in Washington from 2005 to 10 as Director of Literature at the NEA, I'm here to say that you you succeeded uh, uh, amazingly well. I used to, I mean, I have no native background, um, but I I went several times and and found it thrilling. Do you go back? Do you go back, uh, uh to, to ma- to, to see how it's, uh, you know, uh, held, kept faith with your original vision?
1: <laughs> no, I, I do. I do. What the the you know, the native world is very small in lots of ways. It so happens that the current director, Kevin Gover, is my former law partner. <laughs> um, <and laughs> so, I mean, how, how can you get any more incestuous than that? <laughs> and, and, uh, no, he, he's very much kept the dream alive and, and, uh, so, no, it I, I honestly, if you're a founding director, you do a great kindness by simply vanishing for a while. Mm-hmm. Founding directors tend not to do that easily. I think I did reasonably well at, at doing that, but but they, they tend to hang on and they they stick around and intermeddle and they shouldn't be doing that and all of that kind of thing. And so I wanted sort of a clean break that way. Um, but you know, is it's, you know, I'm what, over a decade out of that position now. And so I do go back and I love going back. You know, I love, I love being in the place. I really do. That building on the mall is very special to me. Oh, uh, 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 I,
0: my, my last word remains, congratulations. It's tremendous. <laughs> now, I guess you were in less danger than most uh, directors, especially founding directors who, who who leave, because you had a new institution um, before long. You you weren't starting a museum, but you were, I don't know, restarting a museum at the Autry? Well, that was the idea. The idea was that it
1: was, it was, uh, I knew the Autry very well, partly through my association earlier with the Autry, when the Southwest Museum of the American Union had been merged into the Autry. And at that time, John John Gray, and we kidded, we kidded each other about just switching chairs. I came to the Autry as his not immediate successor, but one of his successors, and he went to the Smithsonian as the director of the National Museum of American History. Um, and we just sort of changed seats around. Uh, but it it was uh, so I had a connection. I had a connection here to begin with, and there. But there is an an intellectual and a museological point about the Autry compared even to the NMAI, which is of great interest to me. And that was the reason that I finally did it. The the NMAI, in a couple of sentences, grew up out of the multicultural movement of the late 80s and early 90s in the United States. You know, as those communities of culture that had been marginalized Mm -hmm. kind of banged on the door of the middle to get back into the narrative. And in, in museums that took the form of uh, multicultural or ethnic specific museums, which the, the NMAI unquestionably was in that way. But I'm reminded of what Lonnie has said, who used to sit on, Lonnie Bunch used to, said, who used to sit on the NMAI board when he was working on the African-American Museum and saying, this is not a museum of African-American history. This is a museum of American history. Yeah. And in a way, those of us who were ethnic-specific by origins and directorships, I think, went through that. I certainly did. I didn't went through that transformation, even while I was at the NMAI. And so what the distinction is between NMAI, which at least in its origins, is a multicultural institution for all the right reasons, Native voice, being a gathering place for Native peoples themselves, etc., to the Autry, which I would describe as intercultural, Mm. not multicultural. In other words, multicultural museums tend to be a series of of verticals, if Mm. you will. They can be. Intercultural implies a horizontal, if you will, interconnectivity. Uh, However, it it may be conflicted, conflicting. It may be harmonious. Often it isn't, blah, 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 blah. But it's a much more complete take if you will, and nuance and subtlety on history and culture and and that's what intrigued me about the opera, and I think it does do that It did it under John Gray, and it 's doing it still.
0: Wow. now um, uh, so um, as I say, I, I adore the National Museum of the American Indian, and then I came back home to California, which is which is my birthplace as well. And I uh, fell under the spell of the Autry. I, I, um, I, I launched a book there and I do all my holiday shopping in the, you know, <laughs> in the gift shop. Don't stop. You have, stop. <laughs> you have uh, or the Autry has, I don't know if I can speak of you interchangeably for much longer, the <laughs> Californiana and the Los Angeles shelf within that at the Autry uh, gift shop, is the rival of any bookshop I know. Um, I'm delighted to hear that. And I think, I think you will find that
1: even more so, and I don't wanna, I would never commit, put words in Steve Aaron's mouth. He, he speaks so well himself. But what I will say is that I have always considered the Autry. I, I came wanting to make sure that in the museum community, and even in this city, that the Autry had the kind of footprint that it should have. It's a very distinguished institution. It has been doing good work for a very long time. That, Interestingly enough, is often more recognized outside of the city than inside the city. Hmm. And, and I wanted to change that. I think we've made some progress in doing that. And one of the reasons is that it is, if there's any museum in town that, that, that is really kind of a city museum of this city in terms of the expanse of its collections, which cut across everything, all communities, all kinds of collecting, historical material, archeological, anthropological art, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The Autry has it. I mean, on a per square foot basis, it has a huge collection. It is, it is over 600,000 objects that sit in that institution. And that's large for a museum of the Autry side. And, and, and I just I just wanted them to wa- wanted to make our footprint more firm in exactly what we are, this intercultural approach to interpretation. I think Steve has signaled, and you can ask him about this sometime, mm-hmm. um, Steve has signaled that he wants the Autry to be even more so in that way. Even, he wants to enhance the connectedness of the Autry with the diverse, Audiences and communities in, in LA. Because he recognizes, which I do, I, I think, I think I told you in one of our exchanges that, that we we intend to stay here in LA. It's practical because our old families, you know, kids, grandkids, etc. But it's also just because there is a there's a sheer um, for me inspiring muscularity. To, to LA uh, as an arts and culture and museum city. There really is. You know, San Francisco can sniff all it wants. Yeah, i say there's no between the two cities in these terms. Um, we are far more the city of the future. We, you know, we sit on the West Coast looking west into the Pacific, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and uh, I just think it's a fascinating place to be. And so I want, I think it would be a great a great development if somehow the the connections between the Autry and LA and our connection as you defined it through the bookshelf uh kind of expands even more if you will in 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 having a, a connectedness with the city that's important
0: well um probably you know but our listeners may well not um uh, there's recently been a committee that released a report about civic memory in Los Angeles, about how we commemorate the history, the good and the bad over the years. And there's even uh, sort of shoehorned into it at one point, the possibility that there might be what a lot of us have, have daydreamed about. There might be a museum of Los Angeles. Yeah. And I, 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 I'm trying to take you at your word about how you, know, you corrected your last museum, but just hypothetically. Um, if you were going to, uh, create, help create a museum of Los Angeles, or if you were going to whisper in the ear of somebody who wanted to create such a museum, what would your, uh, what would your recommendations be?
1: Would well, you- uh, it, it should be very much, which, it, it, this is partly just my, my museology speaking, uh, if you will, but it should be very much as, um, as Secretary Adams said, that some of the first words out of his mouth were that the NMAI was going to be an outside-in, bottoms-up museum. Hmm. Forget the temple on the hill. Yeah. Uh, forget the self-appointed priesthood, uh, et cetera. And, and somehow I think that for, for an institution like that to succeed in Los Angeles, uh, you would have to look at it that way. it it would need very much to be a bottoms up outside in kind of institution that had that had not sort of formalized and 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 correct community connection but sort of a working on a daily basis connection with the community and what is going on here believe me in terms of history the ties of that to present issues etc It's just unbelievable what sits in this city. So I would say that as as an approach, it would have to be organized in a way which honored that ethic of how you you build institutions called museums in a city like Los Angeles if you wanted it to succeed.
0: Well, uh, to some extent, still and maybe always, Los Angeles is the enormous... Uh, place, uh, that you first encountered taking the train in from San Bernardino to Union Station. Right. Um, where would you put such an institution in the vast expanse of LA that would make it feel as if it belonged to the whole place?
1: Well, I, I think that I, what, you, you'd, you'd look at it, I think, in two ways, if I were thinking that. I think it should be in L.A., and I mean in the downtown part of L.A. You really? Possibly. Yeah. No, no. I, I, would, I would not – well, I don't want to offend any geographic sections of L.A., but yeah. I, I would not I, – I think it should be in, in what we define as the center of the city. But I would also say – and you can take a page from what LACMA has done recently, if we had the size and the the, uh, the financial have to do it, I think we do the same. And that's this notion that there should be, however you do it, dispersion. Now now maybe that's not, maybe it can be physical if you have the financial assets to do that so that it isn't just in downtown LA, but it is el- elsewhere too. Or I would say that at the very least, um, this would be a situation given the vast expanse of LA, mm-hmm. where you would want to not just rely on the physical. Don't think only in terms of how many people you can get in your four, within your four walls and where that should be, mm-hmm. but think instead about taking advantage of technologies that give it the spread mm-hmm. that it needs to go elsewhere in the city. That's if, if museums learned anything from the last 14 months, and in having to turn on a dime to do things virtually rather than in person. That's part of it. And that's that's something we will not change doing. Um, we, will, we will continue to do that. Of course, we will pivot to embrace the, the folks who come to the campus itself. Uh, but, but if you're, you're, you should think, especially in a place like LA, of wherever it is you put it, and I still tilt toward downtown LA, mm-hmm. Um, wherever you put it, that it has ways of reaching beyond its physical location that that are meaningful and manageable for the institution and the audiences you attend.
0: Um, let's just talk briefly and I promise I'm not going to monopolize your morning much more than I already have sure. um, let's talk about exhibits are there exhibits coming up at the Autry that you're that will you know uh, you know o- open after your tenure that you're looking forward to ones at the autrys over your tenure that you've been especially proud of and sure. you know if you were what would the what should the And 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 exhibits that you never that you always wanted to do and never could and maybe could find their way into an eventual museum of Los Angeles. Oh, that's uh, we're not going to deal with that in the next few minutes, so I won't even try. So, but I would
1: say, uh, first of all, ones that I have particularly appreciated or or am particularly proud of, and and let me preface it all by saying that that I I I think museums should live by other than only their exhibits. I know that's our medium. That's our genre, if you will, that people associate with museums. But programming is much more diverse than that now, and it should be. And really, if you're trying to engage publics, um, then you need to be able to diversify your programming accordingly too. Mm -hmm. And first of all, um, not just rely on exhibits, but even to the extent you do rely on exhibits, get other people in the room and the predictable ones that you're, uh, we love them coming too, of course. But expand the audiences. So, what exhibits that have had that have had a, a wonderful impact for me. One is, and I can't take any credit for this because it happened really before I came in, but it didn't open until after I was here, and that is Art of the West. You know, the, the core art exhibit, uh, which uh, I happened to go through just the other day. Uh, and even those who have seen it, come back and see it again. There's lots of new material, in it, even though it's a core exhibit that is just, uh, it blows your eyes out. Mm-hmm. Um, exhibits that I, exhibits that I felt especially close to, uh, one would have to be La Raza. Yep. Uh, and, and that was just, that was just, uh, it was a stunning success and it was a moving success. Mm-hmm. I remember going into it the first weekend it opened to the public.
0: This is just so people know. This is the exhibit of the great uh, Chicano uh, newspaper.
1: Yes, and and movement, really, from 1967 to 1977, and political movement. And uh, I often will go into an exhibit, not with a sack over my head, literally, but, but basically in disguise, just sort of walking around, seeing how people are responding, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, what I found touching, almost to the point of making me teary-eyed, was it was fascinating it was grandfathers and grandchildren so la raza definitely falls into that category and and was was uh, so touching so it was the grandparents who had actually participated and knew la raza because they lived through it and of course that's uniquely that's uniquely LA. la raza was here period um the movement may have been elsewhere but but it was really it was really right here. And so it, it's important in that way. And so it was, it was touching uh, in that way to me. Um, and and uh, it, it was, uh, it, it just had impact on the community and it reached as the first time at any opening, at any opening reception, VIP reception, that I've seen a majority of audience that had brown faces rather than white faces. And so it was meaningful in, in that way too. And, you know, that Saturday that I went in to just kind of talk to some people, see how they were doing. Um, you know, I was talking to one grandfather who had brought his granddaughter. They'd come three hours on a bus from South Los Angeles to, to get up there. So it was just, it was important. And, and so then what I would say is the other complexities is entirely, entirely external. And that has to do by reference, literally, and as metaphor to the past 14 months, COVID, BLM. The fact is that there are externalities um, that museums have always kept as sort of externalities, if you will, that no longer can be that. We are not immune, nor should we be From those kinds of considerations. So museums at this point are very much in the mode of figuring out how they deal with those complexities. And that has to do with two things. It has to do with how they operate internally and and looking at questions of equity, equitable treatment, inclusion, etc. And it has to do with the impact of those very same considerations on what they're engaged in conversation with the public about uh, and, and so it's, that's a, that's a complicated ball of wax. And again, it calls for rather a great deal of complexity on the part of the director.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if you as, uh, the director of the museums that you have directed, especially, Um, the, uh, the Autry Museum where, you know, which was originally, I guess, jokily referred to as the Museum of Cowboys and Indians in Mm -hmm. reconciling those two halves, the Cowboys and the Indians, the people who, you know, felt very invested in one or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, you may have had a certain early, uh, uh, harbinger of, you know, some of some related issues that, um, you know, other museums got around to, to coping with later. Um, How did you go about that?
1: Well, I I think that that that's probably true. Uh, What I will say is that at the time I was trying to cope with that, lots of people were beginning to try to cope with that because there was a crystallization, if you will, of some of those kinds of issues that appeared in the past 14 months or so. But it's been going on for the better part of a generation in terms of how museums deal with that. And I always considered that that literalism of cowboys versus Indians Mm -hmm. has almost less substantive than it was metaphorical. Mm -hmm. In other words, a museum that purports to be intercultural Mm -hmm. and is talking about getting at the interstices, which are often the most interesting areas of American history, Mm -hmm. because that's where the untold stories or the more difficult stories lie for the most part. that's, you know, that that's the complexity of it all. And it's not just cowboys versus Indians. If you look at Los Angeles, it is white people, non-white people, Chicanos, Chicanas, Latinx, Native people, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans. You write it out. You can You can hardly try to write it out without missing somebody. There's immense complexity and cultural communities here in LA. And the, the Autry actually feels that it should do perhaps a better job yeah. um, of getting beyond the literalism uh, and even the metaphor of cowboys versus Indians. We need to encompass in some respects, the entirety of the cultural um, milieu of, of Los Angeles.
0: It's interesting, as if uh, almost the Autry, you know, as goes the Autry Museum, so goes uh, the city. If you can get that balance right um, and bring in, you know, constituents, rep, you know, from all of them, then it shows you're, you're, you're going about it the right way. Were there instances or examples over the years that you found reassuring, that that made you, that helped you believe that attempts to reconcile, and we talked about the La Raza exhibit. Yeah. But, um, specific yeah. instances where you felt as if you were making headway in somehow uh, building bridges between, you know, the, 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 you know the, the late middle-aged guys with the big belt buckles who would come to the uh, Autry, and you know, the, the you know, descendants of native peoples who you know, might've been actively interested and at the same time rather wary.
1: I, I think, yes, you, you've picked the most obvious example, but it's not the only one, but just to focus on Lo Raza for a moment, uh, that was definitely a huge step, I think, in, in that way, and an obvious one. It's not that it had never happened in some part before, but it happened most profoundly with La Raza, uh, which was both a local event, if you will. La Raza, as we said yesterday, was L.A. It, it, uh, it may have been a symbol of the kind of movements that took place elsewhere, but that movement took place here and only here from 1967 to 1977. So that, that, was, that was a huge opening in that regard. And it went profoundly beyond even wonderful program that we've done, you know, uh, Sizzling Summer Nights, which is out on the plaza during yeah. the summer and is salsa dancing and is wonderful, but there's, there's something that gets at the guts of the Autry uh, in in complementing Sizzling Summer Nights with La Raza that's inside the museum. And a couple of other examples, I think, are really very important. Two of the my favorite contemporary art exhibitions uh i have been harry fonseca's exhibition and that was that was quite quite a quite a step forward
0: for Uh, listeners who may not know that just a a quick thumbnail description of harry harry's
1: contemporary native artist to california whom as i remember introduced himself when he met me the first time which was years and years ago unfortunately he's not among us anymore he died Uh, younger quite honestly Uh, but he he said uh, hi I'm Harry Fonseca I'm native I'm Portuguese I'm Hawaiian and I'm white Mm -hmm. and and somehow his coupling and and developing his own sensibilities about identity did encompass all of that he was open to it all but what that exhibit showed is not only what a prominent contemporary Native artist he was, and he was, he's one of my favorites actually. But true to what I said yesterday, there's never much distance between Native artistic expression and life experience lived. Hmm. In other words, they they meet and you see that in the art. And so that exhibit had much to do um, with not only revealing the personal side of Harry, of which is what artists sometimes do do, but also the communal side of Harry. In other words, it was his engagement as a native person and a member of a native collective um, with the rest of the world. And it was everything from um, talking about spoofing at the American dream and what it did. It didn't mean in Indian country, as well as the fact that at a later age, he came out as gay okay. and uh, as a member of the, of the gay community, probably from the late 80s on something like that. Uh, it was a very important part of his experience. And it's even important as an experience vis-a-vis being at the same time. Uh, a part of a Native community. And so it's those, those kinds of, that kind of cultural cross rough, mm-hmm. I think, that the otri should try to get at, and does get at, quite beautifully, many times, as far as I'm concerned.
0: And do you see examples of, you know, interaction, where, for example, at the opening of an exhibit, um, you know, you've got, the, the you know, the 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 one natural consist- constituency, original constituency of the Autry actually meeting and interacting with and getting to know the other natural constituency of the Autry. Yes,
1: yes. and I will say that that, and, and even more profoundly, um, look even beyond the receptions for exhibitions. The fact is that our staff is far more that way now than it was when I arrived. We have Joe Horse Capture, one of the most distinguished Native curators in the country who sits as the vice president of Native Collections. Um, we have, uh, we have re- recruited others, um, brilliant younger curators who have come from elsewhere and also are, are, are people of color who are now on our staff. So that's part of it. Yeah. And then I have got to give credit to the um, Board of Trustees itself. Mm -hmm. At the at the present time, the Board of Trustees, which has about 42 members or so, um, has uh, between five and 10, probably about seven or eight uh, who are either native or or Latin, Latinx. Mm -hmm. And and so that's important, too. And Dave Cartwright, the current chairman of the board, has Mm -hmm. embarked rather diligently, intentionally, and with very specific focus on diversifying the board too. So my point is when you're transforming an institution, um, it is not just the audiences, it -hmm. is the audiences, but you have to sort of do that from within because Mm -hmm. that's when you guarantee that the audiences begin seeing themselves in the institution.
0: Mm. And each other. Yes. Um, Wow. Uh, well, just to bring it all back full circle, because we are Libro Schmibros, and, uh, and I am actively you know, interested, to say the least, in reading. The, the reason, you know, the pretext for this interview, not that it wouldn't have been delightful to talk to you uh, on general principles, is that the LA Department of Cultural Affairs uh-huh. uh, has been running a program that I helped midwife when I was there as Director of Literature called The Big Read. It's administered by a great outfit called Arts Midwest. And mm-hmm. the book we're reading is Love Medicine by Louise Erdrich. Um, um, I've read that, too. I so dare I, say you have. Who's Ojibwe? What do you, what do you I, think of I, it? I've read,
1: read the entire trilogy. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so,
1: it's linked to others. I know. Yeah. Uh, well, no, I, I, think, I think that that's very important. And I, I've known Louise Erdrich personally, as well as her uh, late husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh for a long time and uh it is it is it is uh it is storytelling that is also narrative in other words it is not only an insight into native experience in life but it is important in the reconstruction of a different narrative about native people and their place mm-hmm. in the american social fabric and cultural history uh, and so I, uh, I'm, I was wondering because you told me that was the case but I didn't know what book it was uh, and that it's Love Medicine is comforting to me and it's one that, that I read long ago actually um, but, but I think that that's important and what I would say is this, that they are not only a number of fiction writers yeah. uh, although it's, it's, it's historical fiction if you will in other words, it, it, is, it, is, it is wonderfully interesting and engaging to read, but it is reflective of, of, of real times and real events and social movements, cultural dislocation, relocation, and that kind of thing in history. Um, but there, there's just an abundance. Louise was one of the very first, but you could probably tick off another half dozen or dozen um, with, with little effort who are currently Mm-hmm. Um, moving into into just wonderful fiction too, as well I would say. And I'm, I'm sorry, the name is not on the end of my uh, on the end of my tongue at the moment. But my wife's a uh, book club has just finished um, a, a piece of nonfiction by a native author, Potawatomi named Kimmerer, K I M M E R E R, which is absolutely stunning. According According to my wife, and is on my post-retirement book list, probably number one that I will be will be reading. So, um, I lo- I look forward to that.
0: Well, let's hear
1: your efforts at doing this too.
0: Oh, well, thanks. Um, uh, certainly, the LA Cultural Affairs Department is is shouldering the lion's share. I just get to talk to interesting sure. people for it. Uh, <laughs> Let's and, and let's hear it for book clubs. I mean, in a way, The Big Read is a great big citywide book club. And also, I belong yeah. to one uh, run by Stephanie Pincettle, who gave me the great idea of talking to you, the great uh, environmental oh, the research right. at, yeah. uh, at UCLA. Um, yeah. I know Stephanie very well. <laughs> Wonderful. If I, if you'd had books like that as a kid, as opposed to you know the 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 primarily or in addition to the primarily oral storytelling uh, that you talked about at the at the top, um, would your upbringing do you think have been I- I- different?
1: Oh, it would have been immensely helpful. That was a surround that we simply didn't have didn't exist. And really, what you did have, it's not that you didn't have fiction. Um, but it now sits in book collections because it's sort of irrelevant to the present, um, and uh, we've moved on from that. But no, there's an explosion of of native author-driven fiction and nonfiction that is terribly important now, and it's it's reflective really of of what's happening with your with your book club and what you're trying to do and what the Autry is trying to do. Um, you can see it springing up in any, any number of different areas where this effort to connect more directly with Native viewpoint, whether it's in the form of dazzling fiction yeah. or presentations at the Autry and exhibits or programs uh, that speak a first-person voice. In mm-hmm. other words, it's reflective of, of experience that is grounded in the Native community, not about them, but yeah. of them. And and that's different. That's a very different kind of tale to tell.
0: Yeah, you never quite got that from Louis L'Amour, did you? <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: no, in fact, I'm I'm not quite sure we even began to. Uh, it was just different, and I don't I don't uh, I don't belittle those efforts, but it was it was a view from outside, and that's that's why I think it is so important to invoke. First-person voice wherever we are, whether it's in the nonfiction telling of history, um, exhibits in museums, programs in museums, books that you're suggesting be read on a citywide basis in Los Angeles—it's uh, all the same. It's under the same umbrella, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Wow. Well, you have you have intermittently begun to convince me that you are in fact. Uh, going to, for lack of a better word, retire at least from museum management. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, you, you've already got your reading list, which is, of course, you know, uh, Exhibit A. Uh, what else do you hope to achieve? Uh, this, this will be the final question. What, what else are you hoping to squeeze in, sure. in retirement?
1: Well, what, what I, what I've tried to do is, is I do believe in the in the concept of institution building. And that that shows up in my career as a director, and in particular. I, I even it came to me even when I was practicing law actively, rather than running a museum. But let's stick with museums for a moment. Mm-hmm. And that is that that I I I really believe a that um, in concept and theory museums can be influencers. Okay, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to native people, because so much of our stuff sits in them right now. Mm-hmm and And so i i 've always wanted to be in a position that is my contribution. I will tell you that my my good friend, the former the late uh, director of the uh, National Museum of American History, Roger Kennedy, who was a mentor of mine, even before I became a museum director and a distinguished author himself, you know once said well why don 't you I, I want you to write more i 'm going to see well, I spoke a lot, and, and some of that indeed was published. Um, but what I focused on was I, I want to be involved, if I can, in constructing and helping to put together institutions that outlast me for a long time, that contribute to this kind of reformation and transformation of, of, of natives in the, and, and the place of natives uh, in American society. And the fact is the National Museum of the American Indian We'll be sitting there long after I'm gone and even probably after you're gone. Um, And and it it is an institution that I hope will continue to live. So that's what I focused on. And what I will do somewhat in in retirement is on a very carefully selected basis. And I think I indicated yesterday, subject to my wife's black ball, um, associated myself with a number of boards that I'm going on to in retirement, where it deals with museums, Mm -hmm. uh, native issues, environmental issues. And There, again, I'm kind of focused on what those organizations, which are all philanthropic or academic in one way or another, um, how they influence public society and how they contribute to the strengthening of institutions that we would, that at least I think you and I would like to see become stronger in American society.
0: You could always influence society by writing a book.
1: Well, and I, I haven't ruled that out. Um, people keep talking to me about memoirs, but to me, that seems personally slightly presumptuous at this point. So I'll, I'll figure that out. But, but I, I do love to write. There's no question. And I did it for a living as a lawyer, obviously, because I was an appellate litigator and I wrote all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd like to write something else, too. Right, so.
0: yeah. <laughs> right. I, look, so. I look forward to your your visits to Libros as soon as possible and ultimately, perhaps, to bring us a book of your own to shelve. Okay. All We've right. been <laughs> talking... Uh, uh, with Rick West, the founding uh, 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 head of the National Museum of the American Indian on the mall in washington d c and more recently uh, the head of the Autry Museum and imminently um, any number of things uh, because okay. his talents are are limitless. Um, thank you very much, Mr. West, for uh, bearing with us and uh, and and sharing uh, so much of your experience and um, mm-hmm. It feels it feels presumptuous of me to say good luck, but um, I, I I rely upon you to attract only the best of luck as you've done so far.
1: Well, thank thank you very much. I've enjoyed spending the time with you, and best wishes on your your uh, very important and worthy efforts uh, here in Los Angeles.
0: Well, thank you very much.
1: Help out any way I can. So take care.
0: You bet, you bet. Uh, come see us soon, and and we'll try our best to live up to that. So long, Mr. West.
1: All right,
0: bye-bye. So ends another episode of Libros Schmibros, recorded at the bilingual nonprofit Libros Schmibros Lending Library in Boyle Heights. By all means, follow us online in all the old familiar places, or email us via info at libroschmibros.org. By the way, we couldn't do this podcast without the whole Libros team, Quatemoc, Colleen, Diana, and Alberto. And all of them would kill me if I didn't add this please consider visiting Libroshmibros.org, hitting the donut button, <laughs> the donate button, and giving us a gift. We put good free books into people's hands five days a week here at Libros, right across from Mariachi Plaza, up in the old Boyle Hotel. I'm David Kippen, and there'll always be a free book for you and thousands more to borrow here at Libroschmibros.